You are listening to the recording of a live show. Please do not call or text, as this is a recording, and lines are now closed. You're listening to the Voice of Islam Radio. Broadcasting on DAB and via the internet 24 hours a day. Assalamualaikum, peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome to Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta. And uh, yeah, it's been quite, uh, I suppose. In terms of news, right, it's not really news, but uh, that news cycle has gone on and on and on. And obviously, you know what I'm talking about, Rana. Yeah, of course. Um, and hopefully we're going to go quite into the detail of what went on mm-hmm. with regards to uh, Gary Lineker, at least. Um, okay. And uh, all the juniors, uh, the junior doctors striking as well. You know, that's also news that we're somehow going to be coming yeah, across at some point as well. Yeah, our two uh, topics of the day are... Uh, in terms of Gary Lineker, but more importantly, uh, the I suppose the interrelated free speech, yeah. impartiality, and in fact, you know what's happening today. The second, I think, the second hearing yeah. uh, of the illegal immigration bill, yeah. and I find that quite a misnomer actually. Illegal immigration bill, when the bill in itself is partially. Uh, according to some KCs, yeah. uh, King's Councils, uh, in, illegal in itself. Exactly. And, <laughs> you know, the fact that um, how freedom of speech just keeps on defining itself in its meanings, like mm-hmm. with uh, different sorts of scenarios and different situations where at times it's okay to just uh, say whatever you want about anyone you want, uh, but then there is this issue where, you know, you can't speak about the government uh, yeah i think they call that double standards double standards yeah, exactly double standards. so um yeah this is probably going to be the you know a very interesting discussion for today mm-hmm. and um how you know and do, do you think right uh that it actually detracts from the core subject which is the immigration bill no not necessarily because um when i was trying to go through my own sort of research for this because you have to be able to say something right so um mm. the the point is that look this there, there is a gentleman he has his opinion okay mm-hmm. he's he's gone into a issue with his employers mm-hmm. um that's fine that that happens everywhere okay someone could just say anything about something which goes against uh employee or company policy mm-hmm. But the actual um, anyone who whoever focuses on this will have to look at the actual point. Okay, so mm-hmm. what is why would this person have to mm-hmm. uh, use such a you know descriptive tweet or mm-hmm. descriptive writing I mean, about this? So, in your opinion, have you seen the tweet? Yes, I have seen the tweet. So, do you find that language in the t- or how that tweet? Do you find that offensive? Um, I think, in your it, opinion, uh, um, I think it, it's it's. You know, it's hard. I I can't say that it's it's offensive to me or mm-hmm. uh, it's offensive to um, to whomsoever. I just think that look, uh, when you when you when you go to so extreme, uh, do you uh, have you always kept the standard throughout your uh, you know throughout your career for mm-hmm. everything? Okay, mm-hmm. so are you just using something so extreme just because you know um, it suits your own sort of agenda? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not saying that his agenda, his agenda is wrong. I'm saying his uh, agenda is very noble. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, fighting for uh, refugees is, is a very noble cause. But, um, you know, if you criti- criticize it from a historical point of view, uh, Nazi Germany is is propaganda that is taught to us. Mm-hmm. Okay, when we, when you go into the only a, a true uh, historian who has studied history from both perspectives mm-hmm. could either say yes, this is uh, an offensive tweet, or this is an accurate tweet. Mm-hmm. So look, I'm not one of those. I can't say it from a you know. I don't have pure. Uh, yeah, one, but I'm not asking yeah, yeah, you about exactly. that. I'm just your but, opinion. Yeah, my opinion is look, yeah. I'm 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 just in the middle of this. Um, But I do agree with his uh, sentiment. Mm -hmm. I just think that maybe the wording doesn't have to be so descriptive in Mm -hmm. terms of... But in nowhere in his tweet did it make a reference to Nazi... To Nazi. Nazis Um, full stop. It was that it's symptomatic or that language was in use by... uh, in Germany in the 1930s. Well, he... Obviously... Your inference is one thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, and then just to make that leap that, okay... We're talking about Nazis now, yeah. right? And if you were to um, view it in that sense, yeah. right, then it's it's just a you know his his opinion was that actually this new bill that's come out is quite inhumane. It's quite inhumane, right? which I agree with. Yeah. I just think that maybe uh, it just had to be at that point. It didn't have to go to that extreme where mm-hmm. you know that's where it's. But the, you see, that's the thing. I think that the powers that be have whipped up... It's a bit of a storm in a teacup, exactly. almost, right? And have whipped up sentiment. And it's a bit like the shell game, yeah. right? Uh, I don't know if our listeners out there have ever played the shell game, but yeah. it's like that little coin yeah. in three cups, and you're trying to find where that coin yeah. is or whatever the P is, right? So you're not seeing exactly what is truly happening and what the true issues are, exactly. which are, like today, healthcare, exactly. right? Junior doctors coming on strike or going out on strike, first time ever. Yeah. Uh, also, the second hearing of the this illegal immigration bill. Yeah. So, you know, we, we are detracting, right? So let's yep. just jump straight into that. Uh, our first uh, topic of the day, which is healthcare, right? Yeah. Now, is it a right or is it a privilege? Yeah. Um, and in terms of rights and privileges, yeah, if we look, you know, healthcare is a critical issue that affects obviously all individuals, society as a whole, uh, regardless of their background and financial status. Now, in Islam, healthcare has always been integral to faith uh, with an emphasis on maintaining physical and spiritual well-being. Uh, Despite this, half of the world's population lacks access to essential health services, uh, according to a 2017 report by the WHO, the World Health Organization. So who really deserves access to healthcare? Uh, is it only for those who can afford it? Uh, who decides which individu- individuals should have healthcare access? So, you know, that's what we're going to be talking about in our first topic of the day. Now, you know, is there a healthcare inequality? Um, the World Health, a World Health, Health Organization and World Bank group tra- report launched in 2017 found that half the world's population lacks access to essential health services, with the majority of these individuals living in low-income and middle-income countries. In sub-Saharan Africa, for example, the, doc- the doctor-to-patient ratio is one doctor for every 5,000 individuals, compared to one doctor for every 400 individuals in high-income countries. One of the major barriers to accessing healthcare in low-income countries is the lack of healthcare infrastructure. In low-income countries, Healthcare facilities are understaffed, underfunded, 
and lack essential medical supplies and equipment. As a result, individuals may have to travel long distances to access healthcare. The same report by the World Health Organization found that 800 million people spend at least 10% of their household budgets on healthcare. Inequalities in healthcare also exist within countries. The United States of America, for example, adopts a private healthcare system that is largely driven by the market. Most citizens get health insurance from their employer, and those who cannot afford it may receive government-funded healthcare through programs such as Medicaid or Medicare. However, according to the Kaiser Family Foundation, a non-profit organization focusing on national health insurance, uh, sorry, na- national health issues across the US, 27.5 million Americans are uninsured and lack access to healthcare as of 2021. Wow. Yeah, and the cost of healthcare is a major issue for many people. Furthermore, it is individuals from low income and minority backgrounds in particular who face most significant barriers to accessing healthcare. Mm-hmm. And the Ahmadiyya Muslim Jamaat or community has always recognized the need to provide healthcare to underprivileged people, uh, regardless of their faith. So they don't have to be Muslim, yeah, regardless of their faith or their social status. So there's no, you know, no, no, no kind of like uh, need for access to money, yeah. right? That that healthcare is a is a gift, really, right? Yeah. So on the 23rd of October 2018, the uh, worldwide head of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, His Holiness uh, uh, Mirza Masrur Ahmad, may Allah strengthen his hand, delivered the keynote address at a special reception held to mark the historic inauguration of the Nasir Hospital, a large-scale humanitarian project of Humanity First an international uh, charity established by the Ahmadiyya Muslim community. Uh, His Holiness said, This hospital has been built with purely one intention, and that is, quite simply, to serve humanity by by providing high-quality health care to people of this nation. His Holiness further went on to say, We seek no praise and no reward for our humanitarian efforts, because we are merely doing what our religion has taught us to do. His Holiness reminded us of a hadith, uh, which is a saying of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And that saying goes, I am the weak because aiding the weak and poor is the means of reaching Allah the Almighty. So, you know, with that, health care should not be incumbent upon your status or your um uh, your monetary value at all should it really of course not because um you know when you are in that situation where you desperately uh, need let's say you are affluent and you can afford the best um mm-hmm. i think that's when you kind of realize that okay thank god i i am you know financially well off and i can i can actually afford it mm-hmm. but you always think that okay what if someone isn't as the sa- uh, you know same sort of financial status as i am mm-hmm. uh, what about that poor person so mm-hmm. um you know it, it it's it's just i would say it's ingrained within us a sort of like mm-hmm. sympathy for mankind mm-hmm. uh, sympathy for your own well it's the second tenant of it, being a, a true muslim a true muslim it? and generally yeah. a good a good human being yeah. okay i think every good generally good human being should realize that mm-hmm. um, it should not be a privilege true uh, and we'll go to our first guest of uh, today uh, Mr. Fazal Ahmed. Uh, now, Fazal is the Director of Oper- Operations for the non-profit organization Humanity First. Peace and blessings be upon you, Fazal. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Assalamu alaikum. So, 
How does Humanity First work with local communities and healthcare providers to identify and address healthcare access gaps? In yeah, you know, because Humanity First is a global operation, yeah. So in different parts of the world, because you know healthcare in different parts globally is is disproportionate. Yes. So I mean, healthcare access is an issue even here in the UK, mm-hmm. let alone in in low income regions, and it's not difficult to find inequalities. I suppose we just have to pick our battles, and we do that by working with uh, local health ministries and getting their support. And they often will steer us towards communities which are in greatest need. Mm-hmm. So, um, how does Humanity First ensure that healthcare services it provides are, provides are sustainable and integrated into local healthcare systems rather than creating dependency? So, the first thing is that um, in trying to be sustainable, the first inequality that you find is a lack of trained clinical staff in many parts of the world, and that leads to problems even where you have hospitals. You don't have the staff to manage those hospitals or mm-hmm. run the services. So, to be, you know, in, in the early days, we used to send medical teams out to do uh, medical outreach in villages and rural areas. But actually, when they come back, then you're back to square one. Whereas, in training local clinicians and increasing clinical capacity in those countries, we leave a longer term tail. We leave a lasting impact. Mm. So it's twofold now. Then the uh, rollout, I suppose, of healthcare through Humanity First. It's like one: you do have the disaster response uh, teams who kind of act on the ground when something happens, but ultimately uh, the rollout of you know, educating local healthcare. Then, so there's two things: one, we are training local clinicians so mm-hmm. that they can do procedures that they've never done before. For example, for dialysis. Okay. The um, AV fistula procedure you have to do before you can have dialysis. In many countries, they could never do that locally. Uh, so that's one side. But also, we run quite a few of our own hospitals as well now. We're we're running nine hospitals, and our model there. You know, you uh, you mentioned about the Guatemala hospital mm-hmm. uh, uh, earlier. The, you know, for these hospitals, we focus on having good quality staff good quality equipment and services to attract private patients. Mm -hmm. The private income is then used to partially or fully subsidize care for people who otherwise wouldn't be able to afford it. Mm -hmm. And in Guatemala, if you look at the last three years alone, we have fully subsidized over 6,500 patients. Mm. So in itself, it's financially sustaining. So it sustains itself Mm -hmm. because of the private income. And the surplus is used both to um, enable people who wouldn't be able to afford care to access the same quality of care, but also to continue to invest in the hospitals in terms of equipment and services. Mm, Of which you must do. So with the recent devastating earthquakes in Turkey and Syria, what work is Humanity First doing to bring medical aid to the front line of this particular disaster? So, you know, when there's a disaster, it varies from region to region and mm-hmm. their, their capacity to be able to support that. If there was a disaster in the UK, we have such a strong NHS setup that we would be able to handle it. Now, Turkey, 
is a strong economy, has a very strong health system. However, the hospitals in that southeast region were also devastated by the earthquakes a month ago. Mm -hmm. And therefore, the patients that needed urgent treatment, they were taken out of the region to hospitals on the western side of Turkey. But the gap was primary care because many clinics had been destroyed. And even, you know, when we spoke to the health ministry, over 95 doctors died just in the Hatay and Osmania provinces. And therefore, we went in and have been running medical clinics, primary care clinics in both the Hatay and Osmania regions. And we have access to two ambulances and we're taking doctors out to villages to provide care. So these are people who had minor injuries from the earthquake but also longer-term conditions like diabetes and heart conditions. And at the moment, they've got nowhere left to go. So our doctors are going there, treating them, providing medication, providing referrals where they need it to the nearest uh, acute hospital. Your organisation frequently receives advice from His Holiness. Um, How has Hazur emphasised Islam's teachings in exercising healthcare as a right to all individuals? Oh, I mean, we, we believe that health care is a right for every citizen, irrespective of their caste, creed, religion, uh, financial status. But obviously the reality is that those with money can afford care, those without can't. So we are, we're trying to extend care to those people who wouldn't ordinarily have access. Actually, some of the feedback that we've had in Turkey in the last two weeks has been astonishing. So... Some of the um, other facilities that were setting up near us closed down and left, and the people insisted that our medical facilities stay because they said, first of all, the attention to detail and the quality of the care was first class, mm-hmm. just as you know we would provide to patients in North America or Europe. Secondly, they said that the 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 smile that we had for them, the the care that we took of them, the way that we looked after them, apart from the medical side, just the well-being, the mental health side, the way that we welcomed them and made them feel comfortable, they don't want to go anywhere else for their care. Mm. And that is... That is amazing feedback. Yeah, I'm sure that's a a big plus point. And you get that reward as being on the ground there as well. I mean, Fazl, looking forward, uh, what are some of the biggest challenges to Humanity First uh, in terms of improving healthcare or trying to improve healthcare access globally? I mean, how is the organization working uh, to take these challenges on? Probably the biggest challenge that we face actually is local clinical capacity in Africa, mm-hmm. in parts of South Asia, in Central America. Because, you know, we, we said that we, we go and try and train local clinical teams. Mm-hmm. And we've been very successful in that for many years. So, you know, we've trained 25% of the clinicians in the Gambia. We train a big percentage of clinicians in Southeast Uganda. The trouble is those people then very quickly try and migrate so they can earn money in North America or Europe or elsewhere. So the challenge is finding ways ways to train them, but then also encourage them Mm. to stay and serve their population. And one way is that if we're training them, we might sign a contract that for three years they have to stay and serve 
in our clinic or mm-hmm. you know in in that rural area before they they start you know and, and you can't blame them for wanting to better themselves mm, yeah uh, but but that that is a challenge mm. so so that is the main challenge is actually not the training itself the nuts and bolts of it is the actual retention of that um i suppose that skill that you've provided yes uh, i would say that's that's one of the main challenges the other the other challenge in areas that are off grid or rural is the the type of medical you wouldn't think about it if you're going into the nhs you go for an mri scan mm-hmm. an x-ray or whatever but you don't realize that you know to keep an mri running to keep the magnets cool they would be topping it up with helium you can't get helium in remote parts of africa mm-hmm. so there are new technologies coming up and innovations that are sealed units that don't need that much helium that you know can provide a similar service with a lot less technology and we're constantly looking at that kind of innovation so that we can provide a similar level of care but without the danger that you know when there's a power cut you mm. kill the equipment Mm, excellent. Well, uh, as always, Fassel, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for joining us on the Drive Time Show this afternoon. That's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you. Me. Have a good day. 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Uh, I mean, what is uh, uh, pretty much actually <laughs> Fassel's given us the Islamic viewpoint on healthcare and access to it? But, you know, for our listeners out there, uh, uh, Atta, yeah, what are those core values in Islam? Healthcare and medicine have always been integral to the Islamic faith, with an emphasis on maintaining physical and spiritual well-being. The golden age of Islam, spanning between 8th to 13th century, makes, made significant contributions to the field of medicine, establishing hospitals and medical schools. Famous Islamic physicians such as Ali uh, al-Razi, Ibn Sina and Ibn al-Nafis all made significant contributions to the development of new surgical techniques, identification of diseases, and the creation of medical textbooks used all over the world. One of the most important aspects of healthcare in Islam is the belief that God, uh, that good health is a gift from God, and that it, it is our responsibility to take care of our bodies in order to maintain this gift. Mm. But it, but this does not mean to disregard the fact that others have also been bestowed with this gift. Now, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, uh, Mirza Gulum Ahmad, uh, may peace be upon him, said, sympathy for all mankind is a moral obligation and a duty, uh, ultimately a message of peace. So therefore... In Islam, healthcare is considered a fundamental right for all human beings. It's not a you know a privilege; it's a right. Yeah. Uh, Islam emphasizes the importance of providing healthcare to all members of society, regardless of their financial status. The current uh, head of the worldwide Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mizu Mazra Ahmad, uh, has constantly reminded us of the importance of looking after those who fall sick. Now, uh, during the International Humanity First Conference uh, back in 2021, His Holiness reiterated that Allah the Almighty and His Messenger, peace and blessings be upon him, have instructed Muslims to seek to alleviate the pain of those who are suffering from ill health to provide them with med- medical treatment, to tenderly care for them, and to regularly inquire after their health. 
He further went on to say, The Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, said, Whosoever visits a sick person for the sake of Allah, a heavenly caller will announce, May your every step be blessed, and may you be rewarded with an abode in paradise. Not only has the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, instructed Muslims to provide relief and treatment to those who are unwell, but he has also given the glad tiding that there are those who make heartfelt efforts to care for the sick will be rewarded in the hereafter. So there is no doubt that the Prophet of Islam, Muhammad, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was an advocator for healthcare access to all. In fact, early evidence of establishing healthcare infrastructure can be related to the Prophet Muhammad, who launched a hospital in the courtyard of the Prophet's mosque, Medina, to treat the wounded soldiers during the Battle of the, of, of the Ditch. Similarly, His Holiness Ayatollah encourages Ahmadi doctors to sacrifice their time for serving patients all across the globe, but most importantly in lesser developed countries. Addressing the Ahmadiyya Muslim Medical Association UK Annual Conference 2019, His Holiness Ayatollah said, it is not enough for our doctors to travel for a few days or a couple of weeks in a year. Rather, a heartfelt spirit of sacrifice is required and a genuine willingness to take time out of your lives to serve humanity. So mm. um, one or two things which I could also recall in the time of the Prophet ﷺ in regards to all mm. of these beautiful, you know, uh, amazing things in regards to what Islam has brought in terms of healthcare. So there was... Um, there was, you know, there, you might have also come across this story where the Prophet system used to pass by a road and um, a, there would be a lady who didn't quite like him mm -hmm. uh, initially and she would throw her dirt whenever he would go yeah, past. garbage. Okay, garbage or dirt, whatever, whatever she, I, I don't know the details of what mm -hmm. it was, but anyhow... Um, and once or twice, uh, the Prophet realized that, you know, this isn't something I'm experiencing anymore when he passed by that road. So he inquired from someone about that lady and he was informed that she was unwell. So um, he went to her himself and said, well, are you not going to, you know, I've been passing by, are you not going to be uh, <laughs> doing what you usually do? I think that kind of, you know, that's mm. when her heart melted towards mm -hmm. uh, the Prophet and that, look, it's, uh, you know, just going to look this was a routine in his life and mm -hmm. he you know he this is the love he had for people in general and he just taught all of his companions mm -hmm. that regardless of what you feel about other people you know looking after someone uh going to check up on someone um when they're unwell mm -hmm. is uh, is a very important part of a muslim's faith mm -hmm. um and i think that actually that that story uh just picks upon uh, or picks up upon something that uh, Faisal uh, was telling yeah. us regarding uh, the feedback that they were getting on the ground uh, yeah. in Turkey that yeah. uh, you know those people who were receiving healthcare from Humanity First teams yeah. preferred the Humanity First teams yeah. because not just basically because they were getting medical care yeah. uh, but it was the way that that care was de being delivered the way it's been delivered with sincerity and look, I also remember when I was in um, we were we were traveling to Pakistan for training mm -hmm. um, in our initial stages of becoming a missionary so we went to the Tahir Heart Institute and um, there was a presentation by the I think the lead doctor I think his name is Dr. Nuri uh, mm -hmm. Saib so he told us a very interesting uh, incident where apparently there was a like um, a protest against Ahmadis going on mm -hmm. re uh, by some extremist clerics nearby uh, Rabwa 
and apparently uh, the guy who was leading the, um, the 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 protest, he I think he had a heart attack, okay. so he ended up at the. Um, the next thing you know, there was a, I think there was a picture of him being treated at the <laughs> at the heart clinic as well. Yeah. But by the end of the day, when he was his life was saved, I think his heart. So it changed his you know mm. his perception within the heart uh, in regards to the because mm-hmm. uh, um, you never know when god will strike <laughs> will you really yeah and make you uh yeah, dependent on the on the on, well on the people that you are denigrating exactly really exactly. uh we're joined by our next guest of the day uh professor nora gross now professor gross is an anthropologist a global health expert and director of the disability research center at university college london uh, Aslam Rakum, peace and blessings be upon you, Professor. Thank you for joining us Thank on the Drive Time Show. I'm pleased to join you. So we're talking about healthcare privilege or right. Uh, I mean, how do you see uh, yourself the inequalities in healthcare access affecting, yeah, you know, the 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 more vulnerable populations in different parts of the world? Well, that's a good question. Um, um, first, you have to start thinking about who's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And often we group together um, a number of different people or groups who are vulnerable. Um, we often talk about, in terms of health care, um, women having less access to health care. People with disabilities, that's people who have physical, intellectual, mental health, or sensory disabilities being having less access to health care, um, people from ethnic and minority communities or rural communities. So it encom- by the time you add up a lot of vulnerable groups, mm-hmm. it, it starts to look like a, a considerable chunk of the population. And part of that is not that they're more vulnerable in themselves, but that, that we don't give them the resources they need to have the same, the same access to uh, the health care that's available in the general for the for the greater population. Mm. So, so uh, in, in that regards, ahead. then, Professor, yeah, well, I mean, what can be done to address this kind of disparity? Because from what I'm, you know, getting is it's, it's not a case of like that they haven't got. Uh, it's it's more a case of access to the health care. Uh, and they don't have that methodology, uh, that form of actually just you know getting to healthcare. Full stop. Well, uh, you can talk about access in a number of different ways. There's mm-hmm. affordability. Can you afford it? There's accessibility. And we talk about accessibility. Um, uh, we're talking sometimes about physical accessibility. Actually, being able to 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 get to a health mm-hmm. someplace that delivers healthcare, or being able to um, uh, have a healthcare that's linguistically accessible. Do, do, do the healthcare providers speak your language, or are they from? Are they? Is it culturally accessible? Do they respect your cultural values so that you feel comfortable getting the healthcare? Um, and then you need to ask: Is it inclusive? So it's none of this is rocket science. We know how to do it. It's a question of uh, in thinking through systems and thinking from not just a healthcare. Uh, perspective, but a social justice perspective to make sure that it's available to all. And if you're not seeing all members of your community showing up for health care, then there's a real issue. And the issue is something that we can anticipate. And if we have the, the, the social will to do it, we can make it we can make changes to make sure inclusion is much greater. Hmm. But yeah, in terms of that, though, Professor, yeah, I mean, Obviously, you know, we're all 
you know, part of the same race, right? We're all humans, and yes. the social will is there. Wouldn't it be better to address it as you know, the political will? Because each government is in charge of their own health care and how they, um, I suppose, you know, organize that health care. Uh, and in that sense, it would be um, the political will. That it is the political will there to offer uh, a socially just healthcare system? Uh, absolutely. It's political, it's also economic, and a large part of it is our communities coming together and insisting that um, the politics change, that the administrations change to ensure that, that the healthcare is made available to all. So to say it's political kind of passes the buck to the politicians, but it's up to us, I think, to hold politicians accountable to ensure that that health care is, is widely accessible to all. Hmm. So should ha- access to health care be considered a basic human right, or is it a privilege that individuals must earn or pay for? What are the implications of these different perspectives for vulnerable populations? That's such a good question. It's a really important question to ask. To my mind, it's a basic human right, but and it's a social justice issue. But also, I, I, we can think about it in uh, terms of enlightened self-interest. If people in our communities don't have equal access to good basic health care, then we all pay. Um, it's not just in terms of the economic, you know, someone's uh, doesn't have access to health care and they're sick, they can't contribute to the economy of the society. I think that that's one way of looking at it and the way some people analyze it. But there is a greater picture. Um, it's um, a greater participation, not just in the economic, but also in the social, the cultural, the religious life of the community. If people aren't well, they can't participate. And, and when we're talking about vulnerable populations, um, I think that it's even it, it, it's really important to think about vulnerable individuals, not just as people who need help, but also people who, will, if they have good health, can contribute to the greater population. For example, we often talk about people with disabilities as people who need additional health care. First of all, that's not always true. You can be disabled and perfectly healthy, or you can be disabled and need some health care or a lot of health care. But when you are kept in the best health possible, your ability to contribute not only to your own life, but also as a disabled person, you may have children, you may have elderly parents, what you can do, not just in terms of yourself being kept healthy, but what you can contribute to others means that uh, when we ask, is it a basic human right? Yes, but it's also an important component to, to ensure that all of us benefit by keeping as the people in our our communities healthy mm-hmm. well said i mean in your p- opinion professor i mean what role do healthcare providers or the systems uh, that are in play uh you know, in perpetuating uh or maybe even addressing the inequalities in healthcare access i mean what can be done to promote equ- uh, equity Because we can see, say, for instance, uh, here in the UK, the founding principles of the NHS uh, are that it provides a comprehensive service available to all. Access to NHS services are based on clinical need, not in an individual's ability to pay. So they're two of the core principles of the NHS in the UK. But we can Mm -hmm. see that it's, it's now that there's a political will to maybe privatize 
the the NHS. So, you know, how can we get away from that? How can we, I suppose, you know, from a pure concept of which the NHS was back in 1948, uh, when it came into inception, and it's been, I suppose, corrupted over time. It's you know, a leviathan in itself. Uh, maybe it does need change. But is privatization the right change? Um, I'm a big supporter of the NHS. And remember, all, all, all high-income countries, with the exception of the United States, have some form of national health uh, care system. Um, I think that the NHS gets a lot right. And I think that we, the things it doesn't get right can be fixed. We, it has worked in the past. Um, I think uh, you might be able to tell from my accent. I'm myself from the United States. North American for it, sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I find the private health care system really problematic. Mm. It's difficult to use even for people with good health care, um, for those who cannot afford health care. It, 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 they're locked out of the healthcare system. And you can see, if you just look at the statistics comparing the UK to the US, the US on average has much worse healthcare per, per capita than the UK. So yes, we need to fix the NHS. And that comes back to, I think what I said earlier about um, uh, getting the whole community involved in the politics and pushing the politicians. But I think privatization would be a, a really sad mistake. I think the NHS has a, a, a really a bright future as long as we remember that it has worked in the past and it can work in the future. Mm-hmm. Very well said. And I'm sure a sentiment that a lot of our listeners uh, would hope would happen. Uh, Professor Nora Grosh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much for joining us here uh, on the Drive Time Show. It's been an honor to speak to you. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye. 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. I mean, the thing is, yeah, that. I mean, I quoted two of the principles of the NHS, and, you know, they are Islamic, really. But historically, if you look, prior to 1948, uh, the the bills had gone through Parliament at the time. So 1948 saw the inception under Nye Bevin, uh, the then health minister, the actual creation of the NHS, the National Health Service. And people kind of forget or don't know, really, that prior to that, there was no health care. So before that, you had workhouses, right? So I'm not sure if you're aware of a workhouse. Um, so they're of Dickensian yes. okay. times, yeah? So Victorian times, you had a workhouse which catered for the poor. Yeah. So effectively, healthcare was for the rich. So if you were poor, you had pretty much no healthcare uh, and you had a limited lifespan. If you were rich, then you could afford healthcare. So that inequity within here in the UK lasted from Victorian times, so the mid-18th century, to the early 20th. That, is, is that correct? Yeah. 19, so, uh, 1948 is the 20th century, right? I guess so, yeah. <laughs> it should be, yeah. So, you know, that's a long time. That's like over 150 years. 150 years, yeah. Uh, that actually, if you were, like right. Professor Nora was like saying, a vulnerable uh, section of society. And the fact poor. that I think in that time as well, um, with with the UK uh, governing uh, through the um, th- through uh, 
you know, like in India. Empire. The empire. That's right. the word. I don't know how the, how the, the word empire evaded in my mind. I but can see the your tongue. With the empire as well, uh, considering um, how they were disproportionate in providing healthcare to the empire as well in the same time. You know, mm -hmm. that's a, that in itself is a very uh, deep subject to go into. Mm -hmm. Not just the fact that, you know, I never would have thought of it in the sense that there is this inadequate inadequate provision for uh, healthcare for the empire which you are ruling and then mm. there is this inadequate even domestically exactly right? it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's so I think it's a vestige more of maybe uh, the cultural uh, history of this country yep. right you know you used to have lords well you still have lords, lords right yep. you can make a lord nowadays yep. but lords used to be hereditary or they still are hereditary yep. but you'd have land you'd have serfs you'd have chattel yep. uh, servants right yep. and it would be the um, the I suppose the duty of the lord to look after his servants yes, and so there was that crossover I suppose yeah yep. and then when you came into the middle ages you came into a Victorian times then you had this this I suppose um, vacuum let's yeah. call it a vacuum yeah, a void whereby uh, those who are lesser well off the poorer society or the poorer elements of society would be just well we don't need to think about them mm. so then I suppose after World War II you had a social conscience yeah. you know you had you know the UK was is still a signatory of the UN Charter for Human Rights right yes. for refugees and we should remember that because yeah, this country so how, is how, voting how, on a bill. How does it work historically in the sense that um, before 1948, those funds were not available for the NHS, but they all of a sudden, uh, as the empire came to an end, those funds became 100% available for the domestic. Is that is that pretty much what it was? Yeah. Uh, I mean, but obviously, it had to become an ince uh, inception, or the inception of the NHS yeah. was uh, the creation of the NHS was a long time coming. Yeah. So uh, under the then Labour uh, government, um, I think in the, the bills had been actually passed during a conservative reign, right. but the inception or actually the creation of the NHS was under a Labour government. Yeah. But I think one of the, the points that uh, Professor Nora was like saying, that certain services should not come under political will. Yeah. Because if you look at this country, for instance, yeah, every four years we get a change, right? Yes. Um, maybe not currently because the incumbent government has been there for 13 yeah. years, right? But normally you would expect a change or there is a change, a general election every four years. But there are certain things like if you imagine you've got a capital, yeah, a major project, right? It's going to take maybe more than four years to build a, ho uh, a hotel, a hospital, right? Yeah. So can you imagine if you've one government has said, right, okay, we're going to build supposedly 40-odd new hospitals, what's the next government going to come in and say? <laughs> yeah, it's just going to be... If they come in and they say, right, okay, no, we don't have the finances to do that, we're going to shelve that idea. So, you know, there's certain... I, I personally believe uh, critical services and health as being one of them because it affects everyone in your society, in your you know, community, wherever, right, that should be a right as opposed to a privilege and should be taken out of the um, control, really, uh, of the governing government. powers. But then uh, there is that issue of, okay, uh, how do you then uh, account for the funds that go into 
this True. private private um it's going to be a private industry right now, i made right? a suggestion so, i didn't give I mean, an answer it's, 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 it's just like uh, it, it just opens up it's, the discussion yeah, like, it's, like, it's, you, you these need are some to, of the questions yeah. that you would obviously I mean, have to answer yeah exactly i mean as yeah there are better people out there uh, than us uh, we're just here to facilitate the conversation, conversation exactly. uh, regarding that but ultimately really it shouldn't you know this is you know what we're talking about today is healthcare a privilege or a right uh, and to speak more regarding this we're joined by our next guest of the day uh, dr mubarak jaja now dr mubarak is a gp and chair of safe care network a non-profit uh, uh, and not-for-profit federation of 19 north lincolnshire gp practices peace and blessings be upon you uh, dr mubarak thank you for joining us on the drive time show Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, you know, in your experience as a GP, uh, you know, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, that face the NHS currently in terms of, you know, delivering uh, high quality health care? Thank you. Um, so, as just to make a point first, um, general practice, which is a cornerstone for the NHS, mm-hmm. we are helping around 50 million people in England every year and carrying out about 370 million consultations last year. Wow. So that huge number of people have been seen, have been dealt. So challenges we've talked about, I will just say maybe two or three challenges. First of all, bigger one is the workforce, which is a big challenge in current time, not only primary care, but also secondary care. And that might be the reason some people are not working today. Mm-hmm. So the increase in pressure at work is impacting on our staff well-being and we all know that high quality patient care relies on the motivated and skilled workforce who not only are physically and mentally well enough to do the job but also feel valued well supported and engaged mm. so in terms of gender practice talk about there has been steady decrease in workforce over the last few years and we are having less working gps per thousand population and that's going to impact uh, on our future uh, kind of consultation, uh, care of the patient. If we move on to my second thinking of challenge is that patient needs are evolving. We are having more complex patients uh, with more complex and multiple illnesses, uh, which require and need multidisciplinary approach to meet their needs. Hence, again, coming to the first point, workforce is not there enough to deal with those problems. And another challenge might be this, which is again the biggest one in my eyes, uh, health inequalities, mm-hmm. unfair and unavoidable differences in the health and to access the health care. So as a GP, I've seen this, I've got two practices. One is uh, right in the town center. We will see the um, patients from our ethnic background. And I can see the difference of their um, health uh, awareness, access to health, and as a uh, consequences, uh, there's a lack of support for them. And if they get poorly, their behavior to seek medical health is to different to the other population which is on our side of the town. So I think if the time strain, I would just say these are three biggest challenges which we are facing as a primary care and the uh, general practice. 
Mm. So, Dr. Morari, you said you know one of your uh, or one of you think uh, points of the you know, major challenge, especially within GP practices, is the decreasing workforce, the decreasing of GP doctors. I mean, do you have any figures for that? Um, I think uh, our forward views have promised from the RCGP that we're going to have the more GPs in your future, and they're recruiting GPs. But um, the, the, the issue is when you have the GPs, you need to have training or mm-hmm. trained GPs, which is currently a three years process. Uh, we don't have enough doctors to come forward to be trained, and more so when they get trained, they move out, move out to the other countries, including the Middle East, mm-hmm. and that has a constant challenge to the general practice and likewise other specialties within the hospital. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I suppose that ultimately is retention and just making your work practices, yeah, just that. It's it's a viable and it's an enjoyable career move to be a GP. It used to be, but, mm, uh, but it isn't anymore. If there's, if, if there's less doctors delivering the same amount of work, or maybe more than that, then there's a risk of burnout and the mm. risk of people are getting early fatigued, retired, and maybe making some mistakes. And no one wants to deal with those kind of things. And hence, many of the colleagues are leaving a bit earlier, are going part-time, are um, moving abroad. Mm. Um, tell us more about what Safecare Network is and how it ensures that patients can access high-quality healthcare services, Doctor. Thank you. So, Safecare is, as you uh, introduced, is the GP Federation for all the 19 practices in the North Lincolnshire. And we have been involved um, in delivering different services in the area supporting our member practices to delivering high-quality care for our patients. For example, during the pandemic, uh, COVID pandemic, we established a home visiting service for the patient. You know, there was patients who were shielding, which means they have multiple health illness and they can't leave the home. So we have a dedicated team who will be visiting those people, uh, meeting their needs at home, and to avoid any admission or which can be treated in the community. Um, furthermore, I think when we move on to the vaccination, we have been involved as SafeCare to deliver the vaccination program in the local area. We have managed to deliver 150,000 vaccinations to the local population, including children. So this was a very successful program. Um, we have been uh, visiting the local communities, including the local mosques, Gurdwaras, temples, and local um, factories uh, to reach those people who may not be able to get their vaccination on the first place or there are some barriers to get the vaccination. So this was such a successful program that um, it has been shortlisted for the HSJ award uh, for the England. Hmm. Um, our other services, the number of services which I can go on, again, with the, within the COVID pandemic, we also establish a service which is called Pulse Oximetry Services at Home, which was essentially measuring the oxygen level, oxygen saturation level for those patients while they're sitting in their home. Uh, we have been monitoring them remotely and they were in our service for 14 days. This service was available for all the residents, 180,000 people in our North Nicotia area. So they, these patients were on our list for 14 days and there was a clear plan for exit that once they start getting better, what they need to do, what else is done. 
Um, there are other services that you run as SafeCare. One of them is, again, which is our flagship services that we are having um, another visiting service for the elderly and frail patient, uh, where we visit those patients in their home, or if they can be able to come to our clinic, we can visit them, um, deal with their current health needs, uh, making future health plannings while involving patients and their families, empowering those patients to discuss their future needs. Uh, this also involves multidisciplinary approach, and we are very happy to report that this has been a very successful service which SafeCare is running. Uh, not only that, we are also involved in um, education. Uh, we arrange educational meetings for all the GPs in this area. Um, our um, half a day release kind of teaching is every other month. We are all the 19 practices, GPs or nurses come together, have an education update on different topics of interest, any guideline update which need to be discussed. So that's also a platform which is provided by the safe care. Mm. Uh, just during the last this winter, when there was a step A infection outbreak, we established a respiratory hub uh, to tackle with the children with the respiratory illness. And that is still continuing uh, to an extent. I think 30th, 31st of March will be the last day for that service. Mm. So we are quite flexible. And but, it, but it's quite a comprehensive need. service that you're providing through Safe Care Network. So it's, it's Absolutely. exemplary. There's a few other which, uh, if time allows, I can explain. Mm. One of them is the community response team, which is probably a flagship service for this area uh, where we work with the local communities, including uh, district nurses team, Macmillan teams, ambulance crew. So they have direct access to um, our GP working in the service. So, for example, um, any patient who is um, called the ambulance and the ambulance assess it and they need further advice, just pick up the phone and we are a phone call away from mm-hmm. that ambulance crew mm. to, to deal with the queries and uh, find out a solution for that patient. So, you know, you, you, you are providing uh, in North Lincolnshire this comprehensive service via uh, Safe Care Network. However, in general, right, nationwide, we've got the junior doctors striking the, today the first uh, of, I believe, three days' worth of uh, strike action. I mean, do you think that the government is failing to support NHS workers? I mean, how is this, you know, obviously this is affecting the uh, level and um, amount of care that patients are getting. Well, absolutely. Um, As I mentioned earlier, with the general practice, um, colleagues are also having similar kind of, even trained, not junior doctor, even senior colleagues having similar kind of uh, thoughts, what, uh, you know, not going for strike action, but thinking their options two, three times before they mm-hmm. get any other plans. So, um, in ideal world, the strike is not a solution for these kind of things uh, that's included in the NHS. But we need to look at our workforce, look at the junior doctors. I think you, if you pick up any newspaper, any articles, you can see the pay is not has been increase as according to the inflation since last 10 12 years yeah, there's there's this and discussion about prep if you work at prep you get 14 pound 10 an hour and junior mm-hmm. doctors get for you know 14 pounds and nine ima- imagine working like all your life too and then eventually well, five years you've got five years uh, a medical degree then two years of foundation after exactly that, right so seven seven years extremely intense like intense studies and then you know a barista yeah. uh, not not denigrating baristas yeah it's right not, but, but it's, it's not, still it's not comparative it, is exactly. it really 
Absolutely. I think not only that, if you look at the um, entry exams or entry to the medical college, it's mm. not that easy. You need to have a pretty hardworking A grades, GCSE. So you need to be top-notch person to, to get into the medical degree or medical school in, mm. in here. And then after having five years of intense working and intense uh, struggle uh, to, to get a degree, and then only be getting a little bit pay as compared to any other um, person who is in that you know, mm. I think my personal opinion, again, I'm not presenting safety for that opinion, but I think I'll stand with the junior doctors on this issue. They need to be valued. They need to be, um, uh, their demands are reasonable. I think they should be able to have a negotiation and get mm-hmm. appropriate. If they're not valued, I reckon world. another country would value them. As and you I were saying that a lot of the people are moving towards the Middle it? East anyway. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've just got to be careful. Mm-hmm. You don't want to lose your own mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Mubarak, it's been, pl- been, been a pleasure talking to you this afternoon. Thank you very much for joining us on The Drive Time Show. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. Have Thank a good you day. Thank you. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. And, yeah, just as a kind of final word, I mean, in terms of how our healthcare workers are valued, I just don't think they are valued. Um, maybe they're valued. No, let me correct myself. I think we as the public value them because if it wasn't so, you know, we wouldn't have been stood during lockdowns clapping right, right. every Thursday. But I suppose, Rana, clapping doesn't come like uh, buy your shopping at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I was listening to the um, well, I, I've forgotten his name. I can't say who it was. His, you know, he was the head of the a particular union who was uh, striking today, mm-hmm. and he was like, "Well, we're working, you know, extraneous hours, and we're on call all the time, and it's just not feasible for us to be on this kind of pay. We're only asking for an extra, I think, five quid, uh, mm-hmm. five from 14 quid to 19 they were saying well i think the figures were that uh yeah the government's banning around it's effectively two percent increase this yep. year and inflation's at 10 yeah so that's negative eight yeah so i mean look it's 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 just like uh, uh yeah they considering the the skill that's required mm-hmm. and the time that's required especially with the strain that they have yeah you, you've got to devotion. you've got to keep them motivated somehow mm-hmm. so. exactly well we're going to go to the five o'clock news join us after uh, the five o'clock news when we'll be talking about free speech impartiality gary lineker and the immigration bill you are listening to the recording of a live show please do not call or text as this is a recording and lines are now closed. Assalamu Peace and blessings to our listeners out there. Welcome back to the Monday's edition of the Drive Time Show. You're here live with myself, Talib Man, and Imam Rana Atta. So we just finished speaking about healthcare and it should be a right or privilege. I think we pretty much said that it's a right, really. Uh, whether it be from a religious point of view uh, or a moral point of view, yeah, it should be a right. Uh, and, you know, Please, you know, if you're listening out there, anyone in the government, pay those doctors. Really, yeah. pay those doctors. Good. But here we're ju- uh, jumping into the second hour uh, where we are now talking about, uh, and I think I said, I don't know how I, I, I introed it, but uh, yeah, I think something like free speech, impartiality, Gary Lineker, and the immigration bill. 
So all those things are packed in here. So what are we going to start the ball? <laughs> Let's kick the ball off with... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry for the pun, a bit tongue-in-cheek. Um, so, yeah, what was this all about? I mean, is it really a st- storm in a teacup, Rana? Yeah, I think you um, did mention it right at the beginning that, it, you know, you gave the um, example of the, the shell game, right? So it's been it's turned into a s- storm in a teacup. It's just... Mm-hmm. An individual's point of view, which he's 100% entitled to, although I do uh, want to question what his point of view was during the World Cup when he went through the. I think it was a prepared run, I would say, mm-hmm. before the World Cup in regards to the human rights issues in Qatar at the time. Well, he was able to. I mean, the BBC's directive was that he was able to comment on the Qatari uh, human rights record. So, so was that his? own view or was that the BBC's view? Uh, I believe it's his own view but it was allowed by the BBC. Okay, fair enough. So, yeah, the, at the end of the day, look, it's uh, it it is the uh, it is an ind- individual's point of view and as we were discussing earlier on that this is more of a an, a dispute between an employee and their employers uh, because uh, the employers would obviously expect a certain mm-hmm. um, amount of uh, you know, filter in their employer using through social media right so um mm. but it's obviously just gone into an overdrive in uh what the actual situation is in regards to immigration and how the UK's uh, policies are changing and they've changed drastically as we will go through the um the statistics of recent times of how you know immigration is pretty much on its uh, uh or you know the the fact that allowing asylum seekers into the United Kingdom, mm. how it's been cut down drastically. Well, not allowing, basically. Yeah, not allowing, sorry. How yeah, it's what I mean, allow, allowing. allowing the asylum seekers being cut down. Right, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant okay, to say. Okay, okay. So, I mean, just to uh, preface this for our listeners out there, now uh, the government ushers in a new immigration bill, making it harder, if not impossible, really, for refugees to enter the UK and subsequently seek asylum. Now, Gary Lineker, the former Leicester and Tottenham striker, uh, who's been who's presented match of the day since 1999, has been embroiled in this uh, very heated debate with the BBC since last Tuesday. Now, our listeners may well be aware of this row. Now, just to reiterate, this is what he tweeted. There is no, and this is in reply to the government's illegal yeah. immigrants bill, right? There is no huge influx. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the, 19, in the 30s. Now, according to the BBC, uh, which is you know, our state channel uh, you know, and is therefore obligated to be impartial, uh, this breached the commitment to that impartiality and it is openly critical of the... Uh, as it is openly critical of the Conservative government and its plans on immigration, apropos the actual tweet from Gary Lineker, yeah. not the BBC's directive, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Now, on Friday the 10th, uh, it was announced that uh, Gary, would, Gary Lineker would step down from Match of the Day until there is an agreed and clear position on his use of his own social media. Now, a huge debate uh, has sparked off on a variety of interlinked issues. The reality of this immigration crisis, is it really a crisis? Really? Uh, how language has been used to describe it? Freedom of speech, the BBC and its potential hypocritical, I suppose, uh, according to some commitment to that 
impartiality. Uh, and we are joined by our first guest today to talk more regarding this, uh, Professor Gavin Souter, who is a senior lecturer in media law at Queen Mary University of London. Peace and blessings be upon you, uh, Professor Souter. Thank you for joining us on The Drive Time Show. You're welcome. So um, in the wake of uh, Gary Lineker's tweet, I mean, is there consistency in how the BBC is regulating these impartiality guidelines? Yeah, this is a really complex issue that has been career society, internet and social media. Mm -hmm. So in the old days, we all had our private views. If you were a broadcaster, you were, of course, legally required to be impartial, as you're well aware. But you could have your own private views away from that. Now, social media has clearly amplified things mm-hmm. and meant that what Gary Lineker has said in a personal capacity has become much more promoted and has been associated by some with his role in the BBC. Now, the BBC, for those who are direct employees, has got very clear social media guidance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it makes it very clear that everyone who works for the BBC should ensure, uh, I'm quoting it directly here, should ensure their activity on social media platforms does not compromise the perception of or undermine the impartiality and reputation of the BBC. Fair enough. Now, where that becomes more complicated, of course, is that Gary Lineker, as with a number of others, is a freelancer. Mm-hmm. And the BBC are equally clear that with freelancers, the position is subject entirely to the contract that they have made with the BBC for their activities. Now, that means that Gary Lineker can carry on advertising a very well-known brand of crisps. Okay. We, can, we can talk about it. <laughs> not being allowed to uh, you know, show advertising. Mm-hmm. But there's a clear understanding these are kept separate. Now, where there has been a difficulty, I think here, a lack of clarity in the past has been uh, with both Chris Packham and his activities in campaigning against hunting and protecting wildlife and so on, or Andrew Neen making yeah, exactly. very conservative political tweets mm-hmm. on the, you know, and those are two, I think it's fair to say, different ends of the political spectrum as a general rule. Those were uh, passed off for the BBC. They said that those were made uh, by a freelancer in a private capacity and not on the BBC, so there's a division. I think what we have here is the reality that the BBC have felt the full force of the government coming in from a ministerial level and objecting to what was said, which was a direct criticism of a very flagship government policy currently. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that the BBC in recent years has been in a position where they may have been very reluctant to risk upsetting a government which clearly has a number of people within it who would quite like to radically change the funding model of the BBC and particularly to privatise it, which clearly the BBC is not a fan of. And I, my personal instinct is that Gary Lineker has been something of a, a victim of the BBC feeling the need to sort of protect itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, thing here, it, it's a difficult position, but uh, that seems to be what has happened. 
And obviously in the wake of this scandal, and I think the positive that will hopefully come out of it will be we'll actually see the BBC adopting clearer, more transparent guidelines, which try to find this balance between protecting its important perception of impartiality and what's been happening with uh, allowing freelancers to do their own thing. But then I would challenge that, uh, Professor, because you you just said that you know, it's felt, uh, or the BBC hierarchy has felt the pressure of media, of the media outrage to uh, you know Gary Lineker's tweet regarding the immigration, the illegal immigration bill, and then pulled the plug on him presenting match of the day. So mm. then, you know, where is the consistency in this impartiality or being uh, a state, uh, a state broadcaster who actually holds to account? any government, regardless of its colour. Yes, yes, you're absolutely right. And that, that's the real challenge. That The BBC, of course, have a, a legal duty of impartiality, which, I mean, when we're talking about freedom of expression, it, it is one of those awkward cases where, in a sense, what the BBC are trying to do or appear to be doing is seeking to limit an individual's expression in order to fulfill their duties under a wider obligation, which is actually a constituent part of the free expression law. Mm-hmm. So the Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights has two key aspects. One is the right to free expression, which we all have. But the other part of this right that, again, we all have is the right to receive a plurality of views, a wide range of information. The, the theory being, essentially, that if we are only ever given one part of the narrative, one view the government wants it to have, for example, and not given, or, or whoever controls the media, and not given the full range of views, then, well, we could still freely express ourselves, but it, it's of lesser value mm-hmm. if we don't get that range. So that's why there is a, and because broadcasting particularly relies on the use of a, a broadcast spectrum, which has a, a limited range, you can only have so many channels. Traditionally, that has been significantly regulated to preserve that variety of information, that fully informed position we can be in. And and that's at the root down of this obligation on the broadcaster to be impartial. Mm -hmm. And I agree, this is where we find the challenge between how we then interpret what impartiality means. So holding government to account is a very important part of the media. And it seems to me that the government of the day will inevitably come in for more criticism than other parties who aren't currently in power, who aren't in a position to influence things in the same way and who aren't necessarily as directly in line to be held to account in the same way as the government. So it's a very fine line, I think, for the BBC to walk, particularly given that, you know, the reality is that a government, that if they are perceived as attacking them, could decide to pull its funding or bring in certain other rules that would, would clamp down on it harder. Or And I, I have a level of sympathy with the BBC for that reason, but the, the, the challenge as ever is how do we maintain that impartiality visiting mm-hmm. the BBC in a way which doesn't deprive individuals of their rights where that can be avoided when they're not 
on the BBC that keeps this plurality of voices being broadcast and at the same time, you know, also can hold government to account. And mm. that is something the BBC have been wrestling with for a long time. Mm. And I think it will always be a challenge. Given that the UK is still a democracy, um, does that mean impartiality trumps free speech? I think it sometimes it can do. I mean, if uh, we agree with the position in Article 10 that that right to the plurality of information uh, from a neutral stance broadcaster is an integral part ultimately of the freedom of expression right we all have, that unfortunately does mean there will be these difficult cases where one individual may be perceived as being limited in that sort of greater public interest to protect the free expression right for all of us. And that is paradoxical, but that's the way the law at present works. Mm. I mean, that's the thing about this given case. It's almost like um, the straw that broke the camel's back. And, you know, we were discussing this earlier on, myself and uh, Atta. You know, it didn't see... I mean, if you read the tweet, it's quite innocuous, right? Yeah. Uh, there's no real inflammatory remarks or uh, phraseology within that tweet, um, as versus maybe Suella Braverman's uh, comments regarding migrants coming to this country. So... You know, there, there there seems to be, and I think it goes back to the point of you you drew of the BBC's uh, impartiality, because mm. I mean, you know, how have recent releva- uh, revelations about the BBC's hierarchy, uh, Richard Sharp et al. Uh, yeah, that's got to have damaged its global reputation. Yes, absolutely, and I think we have to understand the controversy uh, and the backlash with so many of us who do feel that what Gary Lineker said was was absolutely spot on, quite mm, frankly. Yeah. Uh, very in support of what he said. Uh, personally, I think we can and should, and it's also a matter of education and media literacy, draw a distinction between what the individual says away from their job and what they say in their BBC capacity. We, we could make that distinction a lot more that has happened in this case, but I think you hit on a very key point of the underlying context of the is the, the controversy already about the, the BBC, about the fact that they currently have a chair who uh, has been alleged to have ended up being that rule without having declared a particular financial connection with mm-hmm. the former prime minister who was involved in the process. Mm-hmm. And I would do a lot. Armand, Armandio Inuccio was on the BBC talking about this today as well. And I agree with him. I think there's a lot we could do to move away from the position where the BBC's governance has an input. I mean, the legislation talks about advice from the Secretary of State. So as the Prime Minister said today, the BBC choose their own chair. But the law says the Secretary of State has the right to advise on that. Mm-hmm. And I this would have helped a lot. This situation would not have blown up to the same problematic extent for the BBC's brand and perception if the government were at a bit more of a remove. If, for example, we had uh, an independent body who were independent entirely of government who were 
involved in that advisorial mm-hmm. role rather than it being the Secretary of State having the right to reach in because when it comes to this, and we talk about I mean, the BBC code that I referred to a few minutes ago, talks about the not only the impartiality but the perception of impartiality and while there is this perception people have that the government can interfere with the BBC that the BBC is a state broadcaster which is a slightly different thing than a publicly owned broadcaster working in the public interest then that underlying perception will always colour these sort of debates and I think it would be good for the BBC and ultimately good for government to make that separation mm-hmm. much more clear, much more distinct, and to think about the way that the BBC deals with impartiality, because it's very easy to say, be impartial. But does that mean if we get somebody saying the world is flat and climate change is all a conspiracy, then <laughs> they should get equal airtime as somebody saying global warming is bad and the world is round? You know, I don't think so, but... I think the BBC needs to be, and and they are indeed going through this process of reviewing how they cope with this idea of understanding impartiality, and Mm. particularly the separation between BBC hat on and talking in a non-BBC context Mm. as a freelancer on your own social media. Mm. I mean, I do think an audience can get that to a greater degree than maybe is being assumed. mm. I mean, the thing is, Professor, that... uh, I would think public sentiment regarding this is that, yes, you know, already prior to this tweet coming out last week, you had this, these revelations regarding the chair, also, you know, the political uh, persuasions of the director general uh, and other senior uh, like Robbie Gibbs, yeah, their connections to the Conservative Party. And then, you know, you had subsequently the timeline of Gary Lineker putting out his tweet uh, on the eve or just you know prior to this illegal immigration bill uh, coming out for its second hearing today, then him being pulled from match of the day later on in the week. So, you know, I think public sentiment is that actually, hold on, they're saying that they're taking down Gary Lineker because of uh, maybe contractual reasons, but ultimately they want to be impartial then how can they themselves be impartial if the, their yeah. bosses aren't? Absolutely. This goes right back to, to what I was saying, that you know, even if, and if we assume they're being honest, and if we start from the assumption that... <laughs> That's a big assumption, actually, Professor. ...and without you know, letting their own apparent politics colour uh, their view of, of Gary Lineker, even if that were the case, you can see exactly how it looks. And I think that's where we need to review the idea of impartiality and how it works, mm. really from the ground up. And that actually, I think we should pay a lot more attention to the BBC governance and the impartiality there, as well as the message that is portrayed on screen. Because I, I think it's fair to say that there would not have been the level of controversy there's been had this not been a situation where we have somebody saying something very much against current government policy and the perception that the BBC is pro the current government because of its leadership. Mm -hmm. And that's one issue. The other issue, of course, goes back to to finding this dividing line when we're dealing with freelancers. Mm -hmm. 
like Gary Lineker, as to when are they in BBC time and what demands can the BBC put on Gary Lineker as, in effect, a contractor or a subcontractor mm-hmm. yeah. to what Gary can send his own time, because I think most people would... Most of us would have a, a measure more of sympathy for the BBC putting some limits. Mm-hmm. We can argue about where those limits should lie, but some limits on somebody like Fiona Bruce. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, the, you know, they're, they're, yeah, I mean, there li- lies the rub, doesn't it? You know, that there is no consistency when you have, um, you know, Newsnight or, sorry, uh, Question Time presenters like Fiona Bruce. Uh, Laura Kunzberg, who are you know, pretty much pro-government, and they're allowed to have their their say. But, uh, but it's... Clear, they they both have been pulled up on it. Um, Fiona Bruce has had to issue an apology over the comments vis-a-vis Stanley Johnson, mm-hmm. and Laura Kunzberg was uh, told off by the BBC board over certain comments she made about the Labour Party in the Corbyn era. Um, but of course. Neither of them have been pulled from their their day rule. Yeah, exactly. The, the last presenter who got hit by this was Martine Croxall a few months mm. ago when she famously said on the paper's review on BBC News, am I allowed to be this gleeful? I don't know. I don't care. I am over <laughs> her resignation. Now, mm. she may well have meant that in the sense of isn't it really exciting that we've got such a great news item just breaking as we go to have this discussion on air? But the argument or the perception was that it was an anti-Prime Minister, as he was at the time, comment, and that that damaged impartiality. But, you know, those are direct employees talking directly on air. Mm. The, the freelancer position in a role where, you know, he's a football pundit. Now, mm. I don't Should he be commenting on, politi- uh, on politics, really? And it's it's not the same role as an individual who mm. is the voice of BBC News, and I, I think that. And to be fair, again, the BBC guidance is very clear that actors and presenters away from news and journalism mm. are not held to quite the same level of responsibility and impartiality. Mm. Which but is again, with the, you know, with the Gary Lineker situation, it just feels quite a remove from the BBC, a freelancer, a football pundit, to clamp down on him in the same way as Martine Croxall. Mm. But hopefully the review that they are undertaking now, the social media guidelines for freelancers, will ultimately produce something much more helpful. Yeah, much more kind of workable for... Uh, yeah. celebrities like Gary Lineker. Well, Professor Gavin Souter, it's been a pleasure talking to you today regarding this. Uh, thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show. You're very welcome. Thank, thank you. you. Have, a d- have a good day. Thank you. 0208 687 or tweet us at Voice of Islam. We're quickly going to go to our Instagram story where we asked the question, should Gary Lineker have been asked to step down from Match of the Day? So what are our answers there, Atta? Have we got any responses regarding that? Well, the vast majority of them are pretty much no, but there is a yes. There is a yes there. So um, it is interesting to think that... Uh, you know why? Why they would believe that he should should have stepped down or should have been asked to step down? Mm-hmm. Um, True. So, so I think in that regard, 
uh, yeah, we we have to look at it from both sides of the point of view of uh, as uh, as Gavin had explained that look, you know, there is this issue of funding through the government as well, and uh, they have mm. to you know they have to tick their boxes yeah, to make exactly. sure that look we've exactly. we've gone through our due I mean, diligence. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's but then again, there is that ambiguity because he's a freelancer. Yeah. So moving you know, forward, that, that's the actual that was a shock to me as well because. Um, I was one. I before today, I I was pretty sure that he was a full time contract with because I've always been just watching this guy as a, as a football <laughs> presenter and yeah he's been he's most previously exactly since, since nineteen ninety what nineteen ninety nine yeah right? well, since, the since then since you know the early Arsenal days where yeah. Thierry Henry and Burkham yeah. you know he's all of the all of that nostalgic. Mm-hmm. Uh, childhood memories come through this person, yeah. and you would have thought that no, this guy is like he's one of the top payroll presenters. Well, he right? is top he, payroll, yeah, top payroll uh, presenters. But I mean, he is, now I he's think, freelancer, top. so he's probably just you know he's, he's with time you become smarter with uh, yeah. with yeah. work, isn't it? So, uh, well, let's flesh out what actually the underlying bill was about, or this illegal immigration bill, right? So we're you know led to believe by the government that we're being invaded. By hordes, right, of of migrants. So in 2022, 45,755 men, women and children crossed the channel in small boats to reach the UK, most of whom then claimed asylum. Now, nearly 3,000 people have already made the crossing this year, with official estimates expecting more than 80,000 this year. And that's according to The Guardian. Now, in 2022, 1,185 refugees were resettled to the UK, 75% fewer than in 2019. Only 22 refugees came to the UK on the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme. There were also 4,473 refugee family reunion visas issued down 40% on pre-COVID levels. Now, in comparison, in the last year, more than 210,000 visas have been issued to people from the Ukraine to travel to the UK. There are no Ukrainians recorded as having crossed the channel in a small boat. This disparity of which refugees are welcomed uh, has not gone unnoticed. In 2018, in the German Annual Convention... Uh, for the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, His Holiness Mirza Masra Ahmed said, many local people are afraid that their societies are being are changing beyond comprehension and they feel that their nation's uh, resources are being disproportionately utilised in favour of immigrants. Whilst the term immigrant is used, the real issue for most people is Islam and the vast and the fact that the vast majority of immigrants to Europe are Muslims fleeing from war-torn countries in the Middle East. Independent monitors have said that asylum seekers who have crossed the channel in small boats are being treated inhumanely. Individuals are being moved between detention centers with untreated broken bones, burns and cancers. Uh, reports include details of 291 detainees being held in a crowded, in crowded conditions uh, in Dover without social distancing for more than 24 hours in September. I mean, you know, they are the figures. Yes. So, you know, I, I believe the Home Secretary, Suella Braverman, did actually say that, you know, we're expecting millions, right? Yeah. Or billions, actually. Millions, I think it was billions. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, so just remind me. 
uh, Rana. I mean, what's the world's population? It's about six. I think it's gone to about eight, seven. Seven billion. Seven billion. Yeah. So we're expecting a seventh of the world's population to descend in, on our shores in the UK. Yeah, according to Miss Breverman. So excellent. <laughs> she's, she's a brilliant statistician. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So uh, to talk more regarding this, we're joined by James Kennedy. Now, James is a musician and podcaster uh, whose latest album is called Make Anger Great Again. Peace, be, uh, peace and blessings be upon you, James. Thank you for joining us on the Drive Time Show today. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. So, we're talking about uh, all things, well, not all things, but Gary Lineker, his tweet, uh, impartiality, free speech, and ultimately, what's at the root of it, the immigration bill. I mean, how well really has the BBC been able to navigate its impartiality guidelines? I mean, do you see any consistency? <laughs> no, no, I think it's a, I think it's a joke. I, I think it's been a, it's been well known for a long time that the BBC isn't impartial. Mm-hmm. I consider the BBC uh, BBC to be the de facto mouthpiece of of the government's agenda. Um I don't think that's controversial at all to say that. I think it's quite blatant. But the thing is though, James, yeah, part of the BBC's charter is yeah, it's written there that it should be impartial as the state broadcaster. So isn't this just um double standards well yeah but i feel it's a double standard every time they report on for example the issue of israel and palestine and they always take a pro-israeli stance and they they don't actually factually report on the truth of what is actually happening on both sides of that conversation i mean that has been an ongoing problem at the bbc and that's just to use one example i mean Mm -hmm. You know, they, they are clearly not impartial and they, they clearly stay within the boundaries of the government's agenda. And I, and I, and I, I don't think that that is actually cross-party ideolo- ideologically, because if you look at the Gary Lineker example, mm-hmm. um, there are several presenters on the BBC that, that rant and rave on social media about, you know, immigration or climate activists or trade unions, and they get off just fine. Whereas Gary Lineker says something which many people agree with, which actually is uh, you know, exactly the same, really, uh, in terms of what he's doing on his own personal pages as you know, the aforementioned mm. presenters. But what he's saying is something which actually challenges the government's agenda. So therefore, he's bad. And, and, mm. <laughs> are, you like referring to people, uh, yeah, are you referring to Alan Sugar, uh, Andrew Neil, Chris Patton? Yes. And the like. Yes, and, and, and they're ilk, yeah. I mean, you know, they can say whatever they want because what they say basically, you know, just props up the government agenda, whereas I, I don't think the issue with what Gary Lineker has done has got anything to do with the fact that he said something um, political. I think it's because he said something political which challenges what the government, the government narrative. So mm. free speech is important, but we still need law and order. Does impartiality not become important in the case of major TV networks? I think impartiality is essential in the press, but we just don't have it anywhere. And if we can't have it on the state broadcaster that all of us pay for, then we certainly aren't going to get it in the private sector, which is funded by advertisers and private interests. So, you know, it's a real shame that such a, a, you know, a a well-respected national institution that's loved by so many people is embarrassing itself so much. I mean, but the thing is, yeah, don't we have Ofcom? Well... (laughs) 
apparently. I mean, it is a hypothetical question there, James, right? I mean, I do realise we do have Ofcom. I mean, we're here Voice of Islam. We're regulated by Ofcom, right? So anything that we say which is untoward, uh, out of uh, our own broadcasting um, guidelines, we will be reported and Mm. subsequently uh, penalised. So you would have thought being the state uh, broadcaster, as the BBC is, when people like uh, Alan Sugar go on and you know on a diatribe about Mick Lynch, for instance, um, mm. the RMT uh, union leader, you would have thought that even okay, let's talk about it in terms of a contractual, right, uh, a breach of contract. Um, then you can throw the ambiguities of well, maybe I was a freelancer. I'm not a full employed, uh, paid up member of the uh, BBC or employee of the BBC. Those rules don't apply to me. But then Ofcom should be there in the background saying, no, you sorry, you can't do that. Yeah, yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. If the system functioned as they say it does mm-hmm. or should, then that would be a great thing because you know the essential thing in democracy is access to you know real information and truthful information, so the electorate can make a decision for themselves. But you know, we clearly don't have that in you know regulatory bodies such as Ofcom that are clearly either. Um, guilty of gross negligence or, or, or bias and impartiality themselves. Okay. So do you think, right, James, that uh, with this the, this illegal immigration bill, or this new illegal immigration bill, I should say, uh, I mean, it wasn't really at the forefront of uh, the news uh, until um, Gary Lineker's tweet. I mean, do you think it's a bit of an own goal by the uh, government? Sorry for the pun, but I was going to comment on the fun there, yeah. Um, in what sense do you mean? Well, I mean, normally it's uh, myself and Atta were like discussing before the show or before coming on air that it seems to be a bit of a shell game. Usually government policy is uh, quietly revealed or not revealed, but quietly announced while something else is going on in the news, mm. right? So, um, you know, why would someone or a media outlet like the Daily Mail, the middle of last week after uh, Lineker's tweet, go on the offensive? Because it is pretty much pro-government. Um, and you would have thought they would have got their, maybe their, their signal from, you know, from uh, that side, let's say, uh, to do that and to go on the kind of like the warpath against uh, Gary Lineker. Uh, and call for his withdrawal, and then subsequently uh, BBC hierarchy bending to that will, and hence giving it even more airtime. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to know. It's difficult, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's a thin line between uh, do you comment on something and then give it more uh, precedence in, in the you know in the public discourse? Mm-hmm. Um and like you say, you know, by doing that, you're contributing then to you know, whatever agenda is, is motivating that. Or do you not? It's difficult. I mean, we live in an age now where everybody's got access to a platform and everybody feels incentivized, you know, to, um, to, to speak their truth as and when it occurs to them. Um, you know, and Gary Lineker probably wrote that tweet in a, you know, in a moment of passion and anger and put it out there. And obviously, you know, it's become what it's become. But I don't think he could have preempted that. And, um, you know, I think it's just it's just... You know, the times we live in now, isn't it? You know, the noisy mm. times. Mm. Uh, we are facing multiple issues in the UK 
Uh, are the government taking the necessary steps to fix them or are we focusing on the wrong issues? I think we need to focus on one issue. <laughs> Which is? Country, what's that issue? Getting rid of the Tories. <laughs> <laughs> but the government's not going to focus on getting, getting rid of itself, yeah. right? No. Well, I mean, I don't have, I'm, not, I'm not holding any faith for mm. anything this government do. I mean, it's quite clear that the brakes are off and they are just driving this burning train towards the end of the cliff with all the rest of us on it. They, they, they clearly don't care at this point. I mean, mm. you know, I mean, look at this awful, awful draconian bill that they're trying to push through, this immigration bill they're pushing through, at the same time that they're pushing through an anti-protest bill, which they've been mm-hmm. trying to get through for ages. I mean, they're clearly... They clearly know that there's a there's a breaking point coming. I mean, how hard can you screw a nation, you know, through a cost of living crisis, energy crisis, half the infrastructure is on strike, everybody is is feeling miffed off. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think, and I think they know that, but they don't care because they. I think they know that the next election is pretty much, you know, it's over for them. Um, so they, I think they're just going for the for the finish line now. They're just going to line as many billionaire pals' pockets as they can on the way down and uh, you know push through as many things as they can. Mm, okay, I'm sure uh, there's quite a few of our listeners with the same sentiments that you have uh, voiced there, James. Uh, thank you very much for joining us this afternoon. It's been a pleasure talking to you on the Drive Time Show. You too. Thanks for having us, thank man. Thank you. Take yeah. care. You too. Bye-bye. 0208-687-7878 or tweet us at Voice of Islam UK. Yeah, call in. Why not? Uh, and voice your opinion. Maybe, maybe you feel that... Uh, um, you know, Gary Lineker's tweet was offensive. Um, you know, your, uh, you know, that it was uh, inflammatory. Uh, maybe you don't feel that uh, Suala Braverman, the Home Secretary's uh, comments regarding uh, mm-hmm. the uh, illegal immigration bill or migrants, let's call them, are not inflammatory. Yeah, call us in. Let us know what uh, what you feel, but. Yeah, what more can we say? I mean, what are the criticisms actually uh, from you know on the human rights perspective with the Islamic references, right, to compassion regarding this bill? Well, Islam has always promoted the sort of free speech that maintains the respect and emotions of others, thereby creating a peaceful society. Not only does Islam promote such free speech, in fact, all prophets sent by God came with the same message. Even Prophet Moses was told by God Almighty to address Pharaoh in such a way that would melt his heart and not degrade him, but speak to him a gentle speech and that he may might possibly heed or fear. Islam proposes peace no matter what sort of insult one may face. In fact, when, he, when a Muslim is insulted or taunted by an ignorant, ignorant person, the Holy Quran admonishes that, that a Muslim should only reply with words of peace. And those who suppress anger and pardon men, and Allah loves those who do good. And when they hear vain talk, they turn away from it and say, Unto us our works, and unto us you your works. Peace be to you, we seek not the ignorant. And the servants of the gracious God are those who walk on the earth in a dignified manner. And when the ignorant addresses them, they say, Peace. Quran teaches a clear do not argue. If you disagree with someone, say what you believe to be true, then remain silent. You don't have to win every argument. Enough is enough is it that Allah has witnessed your stand. Allah is our guardian and that is sufficient for us. So in regards to like just the context of free speech and how we should be uh, behaving just as Muslims, yes, we should 
uh, say what we feel mm-hmm. without uh, always bearing in mind that what we uh, who, who we are talking to, who we are addressing, mm. should not feel hurt or offended mm. by it. So it shouldn't be a, con- a confrontation. Exactly. And, you know, this whole, the, the first point in regards to uh, God Almighty addressing Prophet Moses to when he addresses um, Pharaoh. Now, this is like this in itself is just so like. You know, it's 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 not. I wouldn't say chilling, but it's it's inspiring to think that a a person from a very like ordinary sort of like um, stature is having to face one of the uh, you know the mightiest people of his time. Mm-hmm. And this mighty person, you know, if we go into like the whole biblical biblical uh, references to it, the whole uh, the way it's built up, you know, this person has caused great uh, difficulty and concern. Not for the person, not for just Moses, but his, you know, his, his people, yeah, his, his people. people. And I love you, mighty. Is telling him, look, uh, when you address him, do not hurt his feelings. Now, mm-hmm. Just imagine the rage and sentiment that you might have. Not the, a, a prophet of God is obviously uh, in a very alleviated status of mind mm-hmm. and uh, and heart, but the people that he is representing, just yeah, imagine, he must feel yeah, they're hurt. Exactly. Right. Um, but still, God Almighty is addressing us to not. Uh, address anyone in a way that could hurt their sentiments. So Islam always teaches this, uh, you know, restrained way mm-hmm. of get your point across, mm-hmm. and after that, you know, do not fall into this. Uh, oh, let's get into this argument where yeah. one of us he said, she said, yeah, and then it's just kind of like a, a, yeah, a tennis a mud, match, a, a mudslinging battle. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. So that's the way Islam. Uh, teaches us to address this. Mm. So we're joined by our next guest of the afternoon, uh, Daniela Naj. Uh, She is a research fellow in the rule of law at the British Institute of International Comparative Law and teaches... No, sorry, can I just... Can I just correct you quickly? I'm a senior lecturer at St. Mary's University. I changed positions. I changed jobs. Apologies. Yeah. Apologies. Okay, okay, We're gonna ha- I'm going to have to look at the contractual obligations of our researcher there then <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> regarding yeah. that, Daniela. Yeah, so, yeah no, I sent the information to you. Yeah, so, yeah. Apologies. So yeah, senior, senior lecturer. At yes, Queen Mary's. Yes, law at St. Mary's, St. Mary's St. University. St. Mary's, okay. St. Mary's, yes. Well, welcome to the show, Daniela. Yeah, uh, thank you. So we've been talking about um, Gary Lineker, his tweet, impartiality, free speech, and ultimately this illegal, or this, yes, yeah, illegal immigration bill. I mean, how does the bill fit in with the existing human rights legislation, and will it be challenged? Uh, Yes, I believe it will be challenged because I see several problems with this bill. Uh, I believe it it breaches a number of um, international human rights laws, which are fundamental. uh, One of them being the right to liberty, Article 5 of the European Convention on Human Rights, Mm -hmm. which protects against um, uh, disproportionate detention um, and, and sort of unfair detention, really. Um, so I think that will be a challenge. I think there will be challenges under Article 8 of the European Convention on Human Rights and the right to privacy uh, because um, families might get separated through that process um, and that that is potentially a breach of that article. I also think there might be uh, breaches potentially to um, Article 3, which is a um, if people uh, get sent to countries, to third countries, where there's a real risk of persecution of torture, that could be a breach of Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is a prohibition against torture, and Article 14 as well, which uh, prohibits um, discrimination So on any grounds such as race or ethnicity or nationality. So I see several problems with this bill. I mean, that's the 
I think the ironic part of this is that you know the UK government is coming up with this illegal immigration bill, and ultimately the UK was one of the signatories to yes. the refugee yes. charter. So it's just, are we yes. really turning our backs? on our compassion and humanity? Yes, and, and UK lawyers also helped draft the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and Winston Churchill, in fact, was a big uh, advocate of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, and Britain also signs all international human rights instruments. So um, this is, no, this is not what Britain is about. I think Britain is about, is a state, is a country which, which respects the rule of law and human rights obligations. Okay, so what are what actual routes are open to those seeking asylum in the UK? Uh, there aren't very many at the moment. That's the problem. There's mm -hmm. only um, the Ukraine uh, safe and legal routes of the Ukraine program. Um, there is a program for people coming from Hong Kong and Afghanistan, but I understand that there are very few people who have been uh, processed through that program. And that's about it. So, you know, people do not have many options to come here to the UK um, in a safe and legal way. So, and this is why so then, you see so many people on these small boats. So, so Daniela, right? I mean, paradoxically, this, this illegal immigration bill, wouldn't it make it more so that people are going to try and get over here, whether it's by small boats and illegally, because there are no legal safe routes, and then be kind of like part of, you know, insinuate themselves into the British, you know, British society? Yeah, and then wouldn't that actually be... Uh, well, they're more kind of fodder for these human trafficking gangs. Yeah, yeah, in a way, yes. I think that's, that's why it's so important to provide a due process to people who come here. Also, because we, what's always forgotten in that whole debate is that people actually have a right to seek asylum under international law. So they have, once they reach the UK, they have a right to apply for asylum. And they should go through uh, the appropriate legal process and not be detained. Hmm. I mean, and is... not be subjected to to uh, uh, human smugglers. No, of course hmm. not. I mean, does the problem currently, because we've seen, you know, obviously in the press, and in fact, uh, the Home Secretary Suella Braverman saying that we're spending in excess of sixty million pounds in putting up um, refugees, stroke asylum seekers, in these hotels. Isn't that just really because that the UK have not negotiated reset or uh, agreements with its EU partners or other countries uh, so that uh, asylum seekers can be sent back to you know those countries? Yeah, I mean, well, one of the problems, of course, is that by leaving the European Union, the UK paradoxically is out of the Dublin Convention, okay. which would have previously allowed the UK to send uh, refugees back to other EU states where they came from. So mm -hmm. the UK doesn't have that option anymore. So I, I would say that that is a downside of Brexit. Um, and the other problem is that, yes, the UK has negotiated a, an agreement with Rwanda, but there are very serious concerns about Rwanda's human rights record, which is why that um, whole settlement scheme is litigated in the courts, because there is a real risk potentially that people who are sent to Rwanda will be subject to cruel treatment there. I mean, I don't. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. Maybe, obviously, you know, you're you're the senior lecturer in law, and mm -hmm. regarding this, so this is your area. This is your wheelhouse uh, of expertise. So, what happens if, say, for instance, this policy or the government's policy of resettling or yeah. uh, sending asylum seekers to Rwanda? So they are sent to Rwanda. They're kept yeah. there. Their mm -hmm. asylum is heard. 
maybe over a period of two years, then they are granted asylum. And to my understanding, that asylum is granted to them in Rwanda. Correct. Correct. How bizarre. Yes. (laughs) Very bizarre. You know? It's very bizarre. This is not where people, where these people want to be. You know, in fact, many refugees also come from Rwanda. Well, the bill, the bill explicitly tries to ban immigrants, uh, ban migrants from using the Human Rights Act to challenge their detention mm. and removal from mm. the UK. Uh, mm. How can that become allowed? It, I don't think that that will pass because all the Human Rights Act does is it implements the European Convention on Human Rights into UK domestic law. So it gives effect to the European Convention on Human Rights in UK domestic law. So it means that people can use the domestic courts and can get uh, domestic remedies. That's all the Human Rights Act does. So, so there is. So, if if you're saying that you want to um, ignore the Human Rights Act or go up against the Human Rights Act, you also have to then go up against the European Convention on Human Rights. And you know, this is not. It's not feasible because the UK is bound by the European Convention on Human Rights, um, and and cases will then end up in Strasbourg. But then isn't this ultimately maybe the end game of the Conservative Party? Because even prior to, uh, I believe this is the, although they say it's a new bill, regarding the Borders Bill, uh, maybe the third bill that has been um, pushed through by this government. But ultimately, the end game is to leave the European Human Courts, uh, Human Rights Court. Yes, but I, I, I personally think that's more rhetoric than actual reality, and I'll tell you why. Because first of all, the UK, and many people don't know this, but the UK has signed up pretty much all human rights treaties in the world. All UN human rights uh, agreements, plus um, the Rome Statute, which creates the International Criminal Court. So the UK is very, very good at signing international human rights treaties. Secondly, uh, the Good Friday Agreement is tied to the uh, to the UK remaining inside the European Convention on Human Rights um, because that's what the UK negotiated with the EU when mm-hmm. it made the withdrawal agreement. So um, I don't think that that's going to happen. There's too much uh, at stake, and it would look very very bad i think for the uk internationally to withdraw from such a convention Mm. i mean uh currently it's been heard uh this bill uh in parliament but uh, there has been opposition from uh, both labor and lib dem sides with amendments i mean you know is is i mean if it's so yeah can i just mention the other problematic aspect of this bill i think there are proposals to also detain children Mm. And that, of course, is also in breach of the uh, International Convention on the Rights of the Child, which the UK has also signed. So that's mm. another UN convention that the UK is bound by. But then, um, you know, is is yeah. this rhetoric? I, I mean, okay, it's taking you a bit away from uh, the legal side. But then, if say, for instance, you know, all these, and in fact, you know, I've heard KCs, right, uh, King's yeah. Councils, um, yeah. in news currently saying that it's not workable, right? It's just not going to happen. But why then, therefore, are the government pushing this? Is there some kind of other agenda? Is this really a culture war that's been created? Um, Maybe, you know, it's us against them? I mean, the rhetoric is there already. Yes. Yes. 
Uh, I think it's to try to get a segment of the population to vote for the Conservative Party, uh, given that we have an election coming up next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I do think it's a populist move to try to get a certain segment of the population to vote. I think the Conservative Party thinks this might be popular with some voters. But Daniela, but, um, shouldn't shouldn't yeah. really a government actually run? <laughs> I'm a bit old school, really, right? Mm-hmm. So um, I believe that a gov- well. A party will come up with a manifesto as to how they will better the economy, better society as a whole, right? Right. Uh, In policies regarding healthcare, uh, manufacturing, industry as such, right? Infrastructure. Um, But this doesn't seem to be the case, right? It's a case of, uh, if I cast my mind back, it's very reminiscent of someone like Nigel Farage and UKIP back in 2016 Mm. uh, and those um, adverts that we saw, hordes of um, migrants and refugees on our shores. Mm -hmm. Exactly, which was also false information and was trying to scapegoat these people and to create fears in the population that these people might somehow invade. You know, the rhetoric is the rhetoric of invasion is being used in relation to these people, which I find very problematic. And I think this is also why Gary Lineker's tweet has resonated so much and has ignited such a debate, Mm. because there is probably, you know, he, you know, even though I don't necessarily agree with his exact wording, I think he pushed a button there, you know, mm. to hone okay. in on something let, that resonates. Yeah. Okay, let's let's go with that then, Daniela. I mean, I've read mm-hmm. out his tweet. Do mm. you find that his tweet is inflammatory? I don't think it's inflammatory. I think he was comparing the rhetoric that was used in 1930s Germany with um, uh, uh, with the rhetoric currently being used. Of course, it's a very different context. So I think. You know, as I said, I wouldn't have put it that way myself because this is a very, we, luckily we live in very different times today. We don't live in 1930s Germany. We're bound mm-hmm. by international human rights laws today, you know, and that's a very good thing. You know, I'm, I'm yeah, very happy God. we are. So it's, it's a very different context. You know, this is why I don't think we can draw comparisons, but I think it's exactly about the language being used. I think he could have phrased it differently. I think the language being used against asylum seekers and refugees is very problematic, yes. Mm, because yeah, I mean, trying to demonize these people in a certain way. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, them. I, I can I can empathize with how he's thinking as regards to that, because in 1930s Germany, I mean, the precursor to the Nazis taking power was to actually dehumanize a section. Right. And it wasn't just the Jews is the yes. Bolsheviks, is all the malcontents yes. within yes. German society. And to actually just make them less than human so that they yes. were an easy target. And yeah. to me, it just seems that you know, it's, this is a, a policy which is, um, I suppose, the go-to policy for governments who cannot run on their record. Yes, I, I, I would agree with you, yeah. I think it's a good way of distracting from actual real problems in, in society and economic problems that we face and um, uh, all sorts of other issues, you know, strikes in the NHS, strikes amongst teachers, amongst academic staff. I think it's, it's trying to distract from that mm, um, in many yeah. ways, yes. Yes, well, yes. And well, unfortunately, refugees then become an easy target yes. because they don't have a big <coughs> a segment of society speaking out. They don't have a big lobby of people who defend them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, very well said. Well, Daniela, uh, it's been a pleasure 
uh, speaking thank to you this afternoon. Thank you very much yes, for joining us on the Drive Time Show. Yes. Okay. Thank you very thank much you. for having Take me care. on. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, it's coming to the end of our show regarding this. Um, and, you know, I just want to kind of quote this uh, thing to our listeners out there, right? So, you know, as we can see from Lineker's tweet, you know, it certainly touched a nerve, you know, caused a bit of a, a ruckus. And it proves, you know, it just proves to show just how multifaceted politics regarding uh, immigration is. It's not simply a matter of putting uh, of people coming here, but also how we speak about those people, how we treat them when they come. Now, which people are allowed to come in the first place? Are Ukrainians better than Syrians? Yeah, selective migration. Yeah, yeah. or Af Afghans, yeah. Yeah, whatever it may be. Uh, and then, of course, there's also the question which has arisen, is one obligated to be impartial even when they morally disagree with the issue at hand? Now, you know, as we sign off this program, yeah, there's a saying from the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. And he stated, help your brother, whether he is an oppressor or he is oppressed. The prophet was asked, it is right to help him if he is oppressed. But how should we help him if he is an oppressor? He replied, by preventing him from oppressing others. And with that, we come to the end of the show. A big thank you to our producers, Sophia Asim, Ifat Mirza, uh, Nudret Kasim, and our senior producer, Faisal Mirza, uh, to our uh, engineer uh, behind the scenes, Habib Saab. Of course, to my co-host, uh, Imam Rana Atta, and myself, Talib Man. Here is the news.